Welcome to the Mojas Druitt Family Team podcast series. I'm Victoria Cobham. And I'm Elizabeth Dowler. And in this podcast series, we're going to be explaining a little bit more about some key family law topics to give people more of an understanding about their money and their life. In this podcast, we're going to be considering what people need to think about and how the court treat assets in terms of resolving the financial matters. When people reach the end of a relationship and need to divide up their finances, the first thing we need to ascertain is what the assets actually are. Sometimes people will have a really good handle on their finances and sometimes it's been quite natural for one party to take care of the finances and for the other party to take a different role in the relationship. So what we normally do is a process of mutual financial disclosure. And what that is, is basically both parties laying out on the table what assets they have. Nine times out of ten, people are really honest about that and we are able to work out what is in the matrimonial pot and how that could be divided up. Sometimes people are less honest. Unfortunately, we have to do a little bit more of a deep dive into that. So that's normally the first process is to work out what is actually in the what we call the matrimonial pot. And uh, there's a specific form typically that we use called yep. a formy that, that that people you know it's 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 thorough and its its aim is to to capture everything. And I think once we know what's in the pot, the next thing is for us to think about how do we divide that up. And we've got a statutory formula, and that's known as the Section 25 factors, and they're contained in an area of legislation called the Matrimonial Causes Act. And what that is, is it's a set, it's a framework, really, of key factors that we need to consider that are relevant for dividing up the financial matters after a relationship breakdown. And broadly, those are things such as the income and earning capacity of each party and whether they've got any property or other financial assets. We also, quite crucially, need to look at people's financial needs and their obligations and responsibilities. We also do have a look at the standard of living during a relationship. And that's relevant in many cases, but also there has to be some practical thinking when it comes to that, because obviously a standard of living when you've got perhaps two incomes and one household to maintain is going to be quite different to when that household divides. Absolutely. We also need to look at the age of each party to the marriage and also how long the marriage was. And in some cases, there will be consideration as to whether there's any physical or mental disability of either party and whether that party's got any additional needs. So once we've got the disclosure, we understand what's on the assets, we've had to think about the Section 25 factors. We also then break the assets down into three main classes. And those classes are capital, income and pensions. Perfect. So what we what we'll do now, I think it might be quite helpful is to sort of break down each of those three different classes of assets yep. and help people to understand sort of what what the options are when it comes to those assets, because um, whilst they're broken up into three different tranches, actually, there's quite a lot of interplay, mm. as we'll see, um, potentially between between those uh, three different classes of assets. So dealing with capital first, then. So this would include, for example, you know, the family home, properties, savings, investments, etc. Sort of what's the the court treatment of capital assets, as it were? It depends on a lot of factors. But if we think about kind of a long marriage, then the starting point for division of capital is Mm 50-50. 
There are all sorts of reasons to depart from that, which we, we can discuss. But I think the starting point and what pe- most people are interested in is what's going to happen to the family home. The family home is generally considered an asset which is central to the family. And even if that's in one party's sole name, and even if one party's contributed a lot more, the starting point for division of the family home is, is 50-50. We've then got all sorts of other assets which need to be taken into consideration, such as bank accounts, savings, shares, and all sorts of other things that people acquire over their lifetime. And this is where it can become slightly more complicated because we need to look at a variety of factors. What it comes down to, though, I think, in my opinion, is is people's needs. Mm -hmm. And when we have a needs-based case, we are looking at ensuring that everyone is has their basic needs met, such as housing and enough income to live off. Needs-based cases are what most people fall into. You know, it's more common that people need to think about how they're going to meet those basic needs rather than having multi-millions of pounds to spare. When you've got a needs-based case, some of the arguments that people might have about, say, you know, I inherited a lot of money I put into the family home or I earned a lot more, they all become slightly irrelevant because what the court wants to do is to make sure that everyone's needs are met, particularly when there are children involved. However, when we've got cases where the matrimonial assets meet everyone's needs, so everyone can be securely housed and everyone's, you know, their basic needs are met, that's when we can have lots of different arguments about whether assets should be ring-fenced or whether parties should retain additional assets over 50% because of special contributions or, as I said, inheritance or other special reasons. So to recap, really, it's starting points 50-50 and certainly if it's a needs-based case, so basically there isn't over and above, Mm. there isn't anything excess after you've met people's basic needs which is housing you know you you can only really start to say well actually we need to ring fence assets because they've inherited or 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 i've kept them very separate yeah when actually everyone's needs have been met yeah and you know there is surplus to requirements yeah yeah, that's right in terms of income then so Mm. that's the second sort of tranche of asset so obviously there'll be lots of cases where perhaps um, a, a husband or a wife have stayed home and been caregiver to the children and the other spouse has been able to go out and earn a yeah. significant salary, build up their career, you know, over a 10, 20, 30 year period. And we get to a point where there's a divorce and there's a real disparity of incomes at that point. And, and actually, um, there's a lot of concerned by the financially weaker party that you know how am I going to beat my needs and I'm going to be reliant and you know how does the court tend to deal with with that disparity or if there's a disparity obviously if you've got two people that are earning you know professionals yeah they've both gone out to work both earn a good income that's very different but how do we deal with that situation where there's a real disparity there is a concept known as spousal maintenance and spousal maintenance comes into play where one party is unable to meet their needs and the other party has additional income over and above meeting their needs, which means they've got surplus to be able to pay the financially weaker party. And if that applies, then there is potential that a monthly payment could be made in order to ensure that that person is able to meet their monthly outgoings. However, the court will quite closely scrutinise that, Mm. and they do expect the people to go out and earn. And as you said, sometimes that can be quite difficult, For instance, if you've been at home caring for the children for 20 years and haven't been working, then 
it's going to be very unlikely that court's going to expect you to walk out and day one and earn a £50,000 salary. You know, that's very unlikely yeah. to happen. So there is tends to be a period of time where there's an adjustment period, whereby there it could be a period of, say, three to five years, where that party, the weaker party, may need to retrain or work their way up the career ladder. And in those kind of cases, there can be a spousal maintenance claim. However, the court do really like a clean break, and that's because... Having an ongoing financial relationship between parties who are separated or divorced has its problems. You know, it means that there's you know, a monthly payment which needs to be made and it can create some issues. So the court will look wherever possible to consider whether a clean break can be made. And sometimes that clean break can be by way of capitalisation. So that's whereby you receive a lump sum of capital in lieu of spousal maintenance to then be able to use that to meet your income needs. And that has its benefits for, for both parties sometimes. It means that the party who has to pay the maintenance can pay one lump sum and there's a clean break. But it also allows the party who was receiving the maintenance to have some certainty. Because the issue with spousal maintenance is it can never be written in stone. And ultimately, if the paying party's income was to decrease, they could apply back to court to have that spousal maintenance claim extinguished. So there is a benefit to both parties to have a clean break in, in certain circumstances and if it's appropriate for those those parties. Absolutely. And, you know, there are other uh, triggers, you know, I mean, remarriage of the receiving party is obviously an automatic yeah. bar to ongoing spousal maintenance. Um Quite often, however, we see things like if if a party is cohabited for a period of six months with someone else, then again, that could be a a, a stop to spousal maintenance. So where there is enough, I mean, certainly my view is where there is enough capital assets available to consider capitalisation that is quite often the 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 preferred option for the reasons that that you've outlined and and I think you know what's interesting is that actually the court's approach to spousal maintenance I think certainly over the last 10-15 years Mm. um, actually probably more latterly um, Mm. has really changed in that we were seeing, you know, certainly when I qualified, we were seeing something called joint lives maintenance orders, um, which meant that maintenance would be paid, um, well, until pensionable age, pretty much. Um, whereas now the court, the court are really quite clear that actually it, in, in most cases, not in all, but, but in most cases, we're really looking at trying to get the receiving party of the maintenance claims back on the road to independence and therefore what the court are really looking for is as you say ideally a clean break but if there has to be ongoing maintenance because for example there's not enough capital Mm. assets then we're just seeing it for a term Mm. um and and really the the sort of joint lives maintenance orders we're just you know i I think they're going to be very few and far between yeah no i would agree with that so and and obviously that's helpful because that uh, again you talked about capitalization of income and and as i say that links into how sometimes the three different tranches of assets interplay with each other yes so and that leads us on nicely to um the third tranche of assets so that's pensions which um can be incredibly complex and um and, and actually we've done a a, a separate podcast mm. with our financial advisor colleague uh, dan gornall um about 
uh, there was a section there on on pensions and how how we can get assistance from actuaries and financial advisors on these assets. Um, but for the purposes of this podcast and just understanding how the court deal with pensions, um, could you sort of explain explain that to people? Yeah, so I think historically pensions were an asset which were quite often missed in a divorce. I think particularly people in their thirties and forties, you know, they weren't looking at what what were going to happen in their sixties and seventies because they had quite understandably looking at the pressing issue of how am I going to house myself and how am I going to meet my income needs but I think in the last five ten years there's been much more importance placed on pensions Um, and we had a, a report released which was from the pensions advisory group really stressing the importance of sharing a pension on a divorce and so what can happen is when you are going through a divorce you can obtain a share of your ex-spouse's pension and that can be to put you in a position so that when you both reach your pensionable age your incomes are equalized and i think historically again people were quite often saying well i'll keep the house and you keep your pension the problem then happens is when they reach their pensionable age they are no longer able to afford the house that they fought to retain and so we found people in a position quite you know quite a disparity in pension age so now we always very carefully look at pension provision and I think the starting point again in a long marriage is that the party the pensions are are divided equally and this can be particularly important for people who might have taken on a, a homemaker role or a childcare role they may not have a pension or they may have a very small state pension so actually consideration of dividing pensions on divorce is extremely important and it's something that I really encourage my clients to think very very carefully about and not something to simply gloss over because they are so important and you know a state pension is is not enough to live off for many Mm. people and the private pension you know is an extremely important asset to consider and and we'll quite often as i say get experts involved to help us with 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 these types of assets but again there are sort of two ways to deal with sort of pension sharing as it were if you're going to share a pension so the first is something called a pension sharing order, mm-hmm. where you work out what percentage of the pension or pensions need to be transferred over to the other party to achieve mm. equalisation of incomes, usually yeah. um, on retirement. But then again, much like spousal maintenance, and you were talking about capitalisation with that, that's an option as well. Mm. Um, so, for example, um, we can we, you know we can work out okay if you don't want a pension share, there is. You know, we've we've sort of said caution with that. Yeah, uh, but, but if you if you did decide that you wanted more of the capital assets, if that were an option rather than a pension share, um, then then that's something that could be looked at as mm. well. But you are still sharing those you know those those assets. Yeah. So I think that's sort of a, a broad overview of finances about how we move forward with that. So as uh, in terms of a roundup, we, we need the financial disclosure first. You know, what are the assets? And once we've got a complete picture, it's how do we divide these up? Um, and as I say, giving you a bit of an idea of, 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 of options and, and how the court generally deal with those three different classes of assets. So capital, income and pensions. I think what's really important to remember, though, is every single case is completely different. Everyone's got very different assets, different needs, different circumstances. And whilst this is a real kind of trip through family law and a a real overview, what people need to recognise is each situation is very different and unique on its facts. And, And that's where we can help people really come around to understand how 
the law applies to their personal circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, it, I, I think people find it really helpful to sort of put theory into practice, so to speak. So we've actually done a separate podcast case study that you can look at um, where we go through sort of a an example case and we sort of brainstorm how we think a court might deal with the assets in that case or, or how or how we might resolve that case. So you can listen to that one. Thank you.